Good morning. Let's get our Bibles out. Uh, We're going to read from Matthew this morning. Uh, We have two Bible readings, one from Matthew 1 and one from Matthew 28. So if you'd like to follow along. So Matthew 1, 18 to 25. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfil what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Now we're going to turn to Matthew 28 and verses 1 to 10. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, Don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee and and you will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do... Thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. We thank you that you speak to us in it. And Father, we we ask as we come now to look at this passage and this topic, Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would be our teacher and that you would be our, you'd be our guide. And Father, we pray that we would learn and see and love and trust more than when we came in. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know that the start of something is important. Beginnings are important. First impressions matter. Whether it's books or movies or TV shows or speeches or sermons, 
we know that how it starts is really important. And so a lot of books have famous opening lines. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Uh, Call me Ishmael. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. James Bond movies, they all start with a famous opening action scene. Sometimes a person will act in a strange way and we'll ask questions like, where did that come from? Right? We ask questions of origin. How did that start? And even though, you know, the way things start are important, we also know that just because something starts well doesn't mean it will end well. And we know that. It's often, it's often not so much how you start, but how you finish that's important. You know, any idiot can start a marathon, but finishing one's a lot harder. And yet even though we know that, we know it's easy to start things, we still put a lot of effort into the start. We still think they're important. You know, the first day at a new school, the first day at a new job. We know that a wedding is not the same thing as a marriage, and yet we still put a lot of time and effort and thought and money into the wedding. And so... Today, as we continue on in our Apostles' Creed series, we're going to look at the start. Last week, if you were here, John helped us to see something of who Jesus is, that he is Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And now today, we turn to consider his life, and we're going to start at the start with his birth, how, how Jesus' life on earth started and what it shows us about him and why it's important. The line from the, uh, from the Apostles' Creed is, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And maybe as we think about how things start, maybe you're here in this room and uh, you have already begun when it comes to a relationship with with. Jesus, maybe you started a long time ago. Maybe you're here and you have only just kind of started that recently. Maybe you're here and you're still trying to work out whether you should start this or not. Maybe you're here and you started a long time ago, but it's kind of gone a bit wobbly, but it's time to restart. Maybe that's you. And, you know, in one sense, it doesn't so much matter that much whether you've, how you started or whether you have or where you're up to. Because I think what we're going to see here in Matthew chapter one, this birth of Jesus, I think it has important things to say for all of us because no matter who you are, you have to admit that the virgin birth is a weird thing. It's only recorded in Matthew and Luke which means that Mark and John both thought you could tell the story of Jesus without it. And then even after it's been mentioned, right, even after it happens, it's pretty much never mentioned again. 
No one talks about it. There's no references to it. There's maybe two or three slight kind of tangential head nods to it, but really it's never mentioned again. You know, Paul never talks about it. He never says, now, remember Ephesians that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin and here's why that matters. That, that, that doesn't happen. And yet it happened and yet it ends up here in the Apostles' Creed, which is one of those absolute bedrock things that all Christians everywhere think, whether it's Protestants like us or Roman Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox, everyone thinks this is true. And so, as we always, as we always do, let's go to the Bible and see what it has to say about this. So first of all, let's see what actually happened. We're in Matthew chapter 1, if you still have that open or you wanted to open it up for yourself. It's on the screen. It'll be on the screen. But uh, Matthew chapter 1 from verse 18. It says, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Okay, so you have Mary and Joseph, this young couple looking forward to their marriage and and their life together. And now suddenly Mary's pregnant. And she says that the child is a direct creation from God himself and that she is still a virgin and that this child is a miracle and a special person and that she is a special person and everyone just accepted it immediately. And they praised God for the miracle pregnancy and that he, you know, he had brought forthwith and they acknowledged that the Lord works in mysterious ways and there was much rejoicing and everyone was delighted and that's not what happened. That's not in your Bible. Joseph did not respond like that. See, we often think, you know, we look back at the ancients and, you know, we think that they were less intelligent and less sophisticated than us. And I think we do that because A, it's fun and B, because it makes us feel more intelligent and more sophisticated as a result. And, you know, we think that the ancients were naive and they were unscientific and so they just grasped at whatever supernatural explanation there was for anything weird that happened in their lives. But what I love about what happens in this account is that Joseph is not an idiot. And yeah, maybe he doesn't know science like we know science. He doesn't know about atoms and molecules and E equals MC squared and black holes. But he knows precisely where babies come from. And he knows what you need to do to make one. And he knows that there is a process that's involved in that. And he knows that he was not involved in that process. And so he knows that means someone else was involved in that process, which means that Mary has cheated on him 
and he should probably just divorce her and move on with his life. No one jumps to the conclusion that God must have miraculously imparted life into Mary's womb. The obvious conclusion is obvious because it's obvious. Joseph thinks that this child has been created with the normal mechanisms for baby creation and he knows that he was not one of those mechanisms. And so in his obvious grief, he's still like a stand-up guy and he decides not to make a big palaver about it, not to make some frightful hoo-ha. He's just going to divorce her secretly to save her from any extra disgrace and shame that would come. It's not until Joseph receives a visit from an angel specifically explaining that, no, this actually is a miraculous conception and that Mary is still a legit virgin, that he then accepts it. He needs an extraordinary explanation for that extraordinary explanation, if I can put it like that. Joseph's problem is not that he doesn't know the facts of life. Joseph's problem is precisely because he does know the facts of life. He knows exactly where babies come from. So that's what happened. That's the event, which then brings us to the second point here, which is where does a virgin birth come from? Every Christmas, pretty much, like clockwork, there'll be some article in a magazine or the newspaper or on social media about how the virgin birth is just a ripoff of an ancient myth. And it's only a few months away now, so they're probably putting together that article as we speak. It was, it, it was kind of common in the ancient world for there to be virgin births and myths and, and kind of stories about divine human sexual relationships and producing demigods and important political people and that kind of thing. That was a thing. And people then claim that the early Christians just made the whole Virgin Mary thing up, that there's no historical basis for it, and it was just copy-paste from one of these old ancient myths. And the one that gets trotted out most regularly is the Egyptian god Horus. He's the guy with the falcon head, in case you're not au fait with your Egyptian pantheon, he's, he's the falcon head guy. So here's what I wanted to do. I'm going to tell you the Horus myth. I'm just going to tell it to you, no weird things. I'll just tell you the story and see if you can spot the difference between the Horus myth and Matthew chapter one. Now you'll need to concentrate for this bit because it can be a bit nuanced and it, it can be easy to miss. Are you ready? He, here it is. Osiris ruled the land of Egypt, but he had a jealous brother, Seth. And Seth tricked Osiris and killed him. Seth then threw Osiris's coffin into the river and it was then lost out to sea. 
Osiris's wife, Isis, who was also his sister, she went and found the coffin and brought it back. When Seth hears about this, he is enraged, right? He's apoplectic. And he then steals the corpse of Osiris and he chops it up into 14 pieces and he scatters them across the land. Isis, the wife who is the sister, she then goes out and collects all the pieces of Osiris's corpse and brings them back and stitches them back into a, into a full corpse. However, she could only find 13 of the 14 pieces. The bit that she couldn't find was Osiris's man parts. But Isis, is, uh, she is a resourceful woman and she improvises and she fashions a replica of her husband's bits and she sews that onto his corpse. Isis is then able to revive her husband just enough to be able to have sex with him before he dies for good. So then, after having sex with her dead husband's corpse, she is impreg impregnated and gives birth to a son, Horus. The end. Now, it's clearly very similar. <laughs> but just think in your own mind, did you spot any differences between the Horus myth and Matthew chapter 1? It, it can be quite subtle. Now... They were already married. <laughs> they were already married. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Now, here's some things that I noticed. First of all, having sex with the corpse of your dead husband and getting impregnated is not quite the same thing as a virgin birth. I think we can all agree on that. The other thing, I think, that stands out is what's recorded in Matthew chapter 1 is very much written like history whereas the Horus myth is definitely written like a myth. Matthew chapter 1 is written the same way that Matthew chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and the rest of it is written. It's just these are the things that actually happened in history. And so to me, the fact that people suggest that the Horus Myth was what was used to copy-paste the virgin birth blows my mind that that is what they think. That is absolutely crazy to me, and I hope you think so too. So when you see that article, you'll know. But what that means is, it means that we need to deal with the virgin birth as it is. It's not just some copy-paste myth from elsewhere, we need to come to terms with it as it is, which then leads to the third point. So, okay, if Matthew records it as an event that happened, and if the people involved, Joseph in particular, if they all respond the way that you or I would, and if the virgin birth isn't just some rip-off of some old pagan myth, 
And if it's instead a historical event, then why does it happen? What is it there for? What, what does it do? And I think there are two main things that the virgin birth does that it, that, you know, that it shows us. The first one is the virgin birth signals that there is something special and unique happening. In the Bible, there are multiple unique births, not heaps of them, but a few. And whenever they happen, it's always a big deal. You might remember Abram, God promised him that he would be the father of many, and, and, but he and his wife couldn't have children. He was 100, she was 90, so it wasn't, it wasn't happening. But then God miraculously makes it happen. Sarah gives birth to Isaac and he's special. And then you have the birth of Samuel. Hannah couldn't have children, but by miracle, God enables her to conceive and she gives birth to Samuel, one of the greatest prophets ever, right? He's special. And it doesn't happen often, but it happens enough. John the Baptist, same thing. Elizabeth, his mum, couldn't have kids, but miraculously she's enabled to. John is special. And so Jesus' birth fits into this general pattern of special people with special births. But Jesus' birth is even more special, more unique than any of those ones. He fits the pattern, but he's, he's extra. Jesus is born of a real human mother, like everyone else, like every other human. But he's also born uniquely, unlike any other human. And it signals that he is unique. It's a pointer. This guy is special, number one. But number two, the virgin birth also shows us that salvation is something that God does, not us. The virgin birth shows us that the movement is one directional. It comes from him to us. It's not that we do anything. It's not that we contribute anything or add anything or deserve anything. Salvation is not something that we help with in any way. One of the most obvious features of the whole account is that it's a supernatural act of God, making it very clear that God himself was about to achieve salvation and was going to do something that no human could achieve. Humanity needed a saviour, but we were unable to produce one ourselves. And this is the thing about this whole thing. We, we don't help. You don't help God. You don't contribute to your own salvation. Salvation comes in one direction, from him to us. And for... Some of us, many of us, that's a challenging fact because we, we have to admit that we can't do it. I have to admit that I can't do it. I, I'm not able, I'm not enough that someone needs to do it for me. I can't even chip in. 
And it's not about being good enough or religious enough or moral enough or helpful enough. You don't need to be anything. You need to receive it. God does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We need someone to save us from our sins. And this is the mission that Jesus came on from God to us. Which then brings us to our final point, that the empty womb links with the empty tomb. We had the resurrection account read out for us. And what's similar about those two things is that we have a new creative act on the part of God, but it's not a totally new creation out of nothing. They're both new creative acts from within the old creation. When Jesus was resurrected, it wasn't that his spirit went to heaven. It wasn't that he lives on in our hearts. It was that his physical body that was in the tomb was transformed into a new body and he walked out of the tomb. The old became the new. And in in that same kind of way, the entry miracle and the exit miracle are the same thing. They kind of mark off Jesus' life with like brackets, right? They kind of parentheses his life. God has come among us and has done something really significant. Matthew chapter 1 says that Jesus came to save us from our sins. And he does that by dying for us, paying the price for us. And the resurrection shows that it was true, right? Anyone can turn up and say, I'm going to die for your sins. But how do you know that it's happened? Well, if, if that person rises back to life again, then you can be pretty sure something's gone on. And in one sense, that's the real challenge of the virgin birth, Because just as you get started in the story of Jesus' life, right? Matthew chapter 1, it's almost the first thing that happens. This moment stands as something of a gatekeeper over the whole story. It stands at the start like a bouncer at the door. Because I can imagine someone sitting here or perhaps there's a person in your wider circle of friends, family, who would say, Man, a virgin conception, like what a joke. You know, that's the reason why I don't get on with any of this Christian stuff. How ridiculous. And I'm, um, I'm kind of sympathetic to that view because that's where I used to sit. That's what I used to think. And without labouring this thought too much or camping here for too long, Can I suggest that if that's you or if that's the person that's in your life, can I suggest that? The issue is not so much probably with the virgin birth, but the issue is with God himself. Because what's going to happen in the rest of the story of Jesus is he's going to talk about a God who existed forever. He'll talk about a God who made everything out of nothing. He'll talk about a God who can create food out of almost nothing for 5,000 men, who's going to raise a dead man back to life again, walk on water, calm a storm, all these things. 
And so if, if I can't imagine a God being able to create and rub a few cells together inside an already existing womb, then it's probably because I can't imagine a God who created literally every cell and atom in the universe out of nothing. Or if you already think that it's possible that there was a God who made literally everything out of nothing, then creating one or two cells in an already existing womb is not a difficult thing for a God like that. We can agree on that. And so the virgin birth kind of stands as a gatekeeper at the start of the whole thing to signal that the rest of the story is in the same sort of vibe as this. And so if you find this bit challenging, offensive, ridiculous, then you aren't going to want walking on water, feeding 5,000 or a resurrection. But if a transcendent, all-powerful God exists, then there's no reason in principle that a virgin birth couldn't exist either. That would be one of the easier things you might think that a God like that could do. One or two cells in an already existing womb. And so the virgin birth can be a tricky event to know what to do with. You might have been a Christian for ages and not quite known exactly what to do with it. Maybe you're a bit embarrassed by it, wanting to skim over it as a quaint holdover from a bygone era. But the creed makes us stop and affirm it. And what I hope is that our time together this morning, that what we've achieved is that we've understood and maybe appreciated perhaps more and maybe even given you more confidence in the scriptures and the historical events that they describe. And if you're here this morning and perhaps are still trying to work out whether all this Jesus stuff is true or not, what I hope that you've been able to see this morning is maybe it's not as hokey or ridiculous or silly as maybe you first thought it was. Because what God has done in and through Jesus, born of the Virgin, is he has sent to us a saviour. And in him, he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. The, the movement comes from God to us and he saves us from our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus and for who he is, special and unique. And we thank you that salvation comes one way, from you to us. And Father, we do pray for each one of us in this room that you would help us to love and appreciate and be impressed by the Lord Jesus even more than when we walked in. And we pray that in his name. Amen.